Well, welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and it's a delight to have you along today. Now, I'm going to do, <coughs> excuse me, what seems like a magazine program today rather than just one interview. However, I have a, a, a very good guest with me, a friend of mine, Chris Walters, who is a glassmaker, and but who has had a lot of involvement with charity over the years, and still contributes portions of his any profits from his glass to charities and I think that's something I want you to listen to as well as tell you where Chris is going to be where he exhibits where his website is and all the different things that go into his glass making and then we'll talk about the charities that he supports as well as the other things on the magazine program that we'll come to that are more what I would call more really heavy duty serious subjects but Chris first I think so welcome Chris hello David and, um, well, look, how long have you been actually making glass? And, and tell us about the two different strands that you actually are involved with. Thanks, David. Yeah, I've, I've been working with glass for nearly 20 years now. There are two strands, as you rightly say, to the work that I do. A lot of people specialise in one type of work with glass, but I have uh, developed what I've done in that I started first off with some stained glass work, where that's making windows, panels for doors, uh, and then somewhere along the line, I'm not quite sure how this twist happened, um, somebody introduced me to fused work, and that is essentially a kiln-fired process, so that you're creating a solid object by melting the glass into a, a solid piece. That can be anything from a small item of jewellery through to large bowls and plaques and that type of thing. Hmm. And, oh, well, it's quite detailed work, but it's also quite kind of has, has a long... Um, a long period of, of creating, doesn't it? Some Sometimes, I mean, especially the stained glass. If you were going to do a stained glass door, that would take you a huge amount of time, I imagine. Is that fair? Yeah, I don't really think of myself as a particularly patient person. But then <laughs> okay. when you reflect upon how long something can actually take from yeah. first conception, first idea, through to the final finished product, yeah, it can be quite a period of time. Um, I'm particularly keen on the commissioning process so that if somebody has an, an idea or a problem uh, or something where they think, right, I think that stained glass might be the answer, I like to have that first initial conversation with somebody, get their ideas, draw it together and make some sort of design. But from that first conversation, oh, crikey, it can be eight, nine months sometimes mm. to the final installation. Yeah. Yeah. I can see you nodding off already at the thought no, of that no. length of time. No, I mean, I, I mean I'm, <laughs> if, if I'm nodding, if I'm looking at admiration, I mean, I think, I think for me, the, the process of actually spending nine months on a, a project is, is huge and only a dedicated artist really could come up with that. You're very flattering. <laughs> anyway, look, tell us about which came first, the stained glass or the fusion? Oh, stained glass definitely came first. Mm. Came first. Um, and in some ways, that's very much how, if somebody's listening out there and thinking about a stained glass project, that's how I kind of entered into it. I had a problem. I had a space to fill, something which I needed to do. I went along to an evening class and one thing led to another. Mm. Uh, I got invited to do some work for other people. And what turned, firstly, as a hobby and an interest into a business. Okay. Now... We'll come back to the actual uh, glass itself because I want to tell people about when you're next exhibiting and when the uh -huh. next sort of uh, arts trail that you participate in and so forth and how they can get a hold of information about you and where they can look at your work and so on. 
But for now, I'd just like to talk a little bit, like I mentioned at the beginning, about the charities that you prefer mm -hmm. to um, give something back to. And in both cases, these are very, very emotive subjects. I mean, the first one is the Children's Hospice uh, in the southwest of England, uh, based in Bristol or near Bristol. Um, and I mean, what particularly drew you to that as, uh, as an object of giving? Well, the Children's Hospice Southwest um, has been going for something like 25 years. Mm. They were first of all at a basic Barnstable. Uh, they kind of outgrew what they were doing down there. And there was the need for a new state-of-the-art home, which was built and created at the Downs in Bristol. I was involved before that even came out of the ground. Um, at that stage, I was working in a large office in the finance industry, and I was able to initiate a fundraising exercise. We raised over £10,000 towards the initial foundations of that building. Um, I think anybody who cares to examine in any way what the hospice does and where it deals with children with shortened lives, uh, short life expectancy and the families surrounding and supporting uh, the, the poor child, um, you're bound to be drawn to mm. some form of support. I mean, end-of-life care is an exhausting yeah. job for anybody. I mean, not with the families, even themselves, of course. But I think a lot of people seem to feel that it's high up there amongst the more worthwhile charities. Sure. There was actually some controversy here in the Southwest mm -hmm. um, when Children's Hospice were first raising money in order to create this building uh, because they were very successful in terms of their fundraising. And that caused mm -hmm. some degree of tension and conflict between them and other local charities. There was a feeling that perhaps they were draining the giving capacity of the locality, which was a fascinating yeah. uh, study in itself. But that is, is history now, and the hospice is up and running, but it still has a tremendous need for funds and for support because there will always be, unfortunately, a great demand for places there. Well, I know, and, and if you like, it's, it's in the more acute uh, areas of giving to children. Yep. Uh, and I know this a lot from the work I've been involved with, which was to do with the protection of children. Yeah. And I think I'm quite right in saying the same goes for most Western industrialised countries, because, of course, our audience stretches across many countries. And we must remember that when we're talking about the southwest of England and, and you know, particular locations. I'm a local boy. Yeah, I know. Well, that's OK. That's why you're here. That's fine. But what I was going to say was I think the equation is still the same, that we tend to give more charitable money to animals than we do to children i wouldn't know the the equation there mm. uh, which is interesting you know i think there's somewhere like the donkey sanctuary which is a fine cause tends to get more than some of the more acute charities that children have and i think there's there's something to be said amongst the if you like the kind of um the whole roots of our kind of charitable foundation in this country very interesting anyway Back to the hospice. Indeed. Now, it's not the only charity that you've been involved with, is it? No. Uh, I've also been involved with Send the Cow, which I believe to be a very worthwhile charity. Uh, 
In my um, first working life, as it were, in the finance industry, I was very much involved with trusts um, and other organisations which might have some kind of charitable giving element. So that when I had the space to do so, I was very happy to help send a cow in terms of their own fundraising activity. Because it literally, sorry to interrupt, but it literally was sending cows at the beginning, wasn't it? That's where it started. That's mm. where it started. But mm. life got very complicated for the charity. <laughs> um, it was a very sort of simple concept that there was the feeling that there was a need to send livestock to an area which had some uh, s- some need uh, uh, in, in, in the African subcontinent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when foot and mouth came along, it complicated life for the charity enormously. Yeah. It complicated life for them, but I think in the longer term, it also became very much a, a, a positive point for them because they had to think more broadly about what they could do. So now there is a tendency to find people who can help themselves so that through training and through help to that community, they can create a vision of what they want to do. Uh, then they can help the individuals, they can help the families to improve their animal husbandry, their farming techniques, and so on. Once that family, that community is back on its feet, then the whole idea is that they spread their expertise. They form a cooperative within the area. And such has been the success of the charity that they do, I mean, how you get to a figure, I have no idea, but they certainly say, that they have helped over a million people mm. with their activity. Well, I'm not surprised. And another thing, part of my financial background was that we used to... Um, I can't quite think of a, a nice way of putting it. We, we used to examine the efficacy with which charities would apply the money which they were given. Mm. And I can say that one of the things which I did observe is that Send a Cow make every last penny of their donations count. I think that's it, terribly important. Terribly absolutely. Important. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because so that's what people do. They want all their money to go to where they want it exactly. to go. Exactly. And I think, to, I mean, am I right in also thinking that no, we don't actually send livestock as such, but it's like um, the, the livestock are still the central, if you like, the core um, earner, if you like, within particular communities. However, when you, you, you send ripples out like a pebble in a, in a pond, it's now there is now business acumen being being taught to to farmers. There's now clean water being being yeah. sought and provided to maintain the livestock. There's now family issues being brought in, whether it's housing or whatever, and the whole kind of uh, regalia, if you like, that, that of this 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 charitable giving has spread out into much more of a huge community activity. That's what I understood. Is that fair? That, that's right. There's, there's, there's issues of gender inequality which mm-hmm. are addressed. Um, there are real education, fundamental building blocks. I mean, one, one example which you, you, you might be in, in that cows are seen in many parts of the community in Africa as status symbols. Mm-hmm. So if you, David, have six cows and I have two cows, then you're a wealthier man than me. Mm. But mm. it doesn't matter if you can't look after them. You've still got six cows, but I've got two. So part of the re-education process would be, rather than having your six cows, David, how about looking after three far better? Right. So there was a dislocation between perceived wealth and actual wealth. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right, good. Okay, look, let, let's just for a second or two, because we've got time, but we, I don't want to lose out in talking about the glass where people... Okay, thank you. Because in the same way, it's inexorably linked as far as I see it, because you make the glass, you charge for it, yeah. and some of it goes to the charities we're talking about. So I think That's I'd right. like to sort of talk about where you're going to be in the near future. Thank you. Yeah. My understanding is, I, I and for those of us abroad, those colleagues of ours abroad who are listening to this, I think... Not sure if you have arts trails in your particular parts of the world, but in England, it's quite uh, an industry now in which lo uh, communities open up their houses, take over halls and locations, and actually all varieties of art and actually creativity take it over for maybe a week or so. And in this case, we're talking of the Chew Valley Arts Trail, and the Chew Valley is the geographical location in which, Chris, you live. Now, how would people find you? When is it first? Is it, it's October, isn't it? Yeah, it's in just a couple of weeks' time on the 13th and 14th of October from 10am in the morning to 6pm at night. So it's, it's quite a concentrated arts trail. Some of these are long, meandering trails which, which spread over whole counties. This is a um, local and friendly exercise. So there's only about 20 locations uh, and as I say, it's from the 10 o'clock in the morning till 6 in the evening on the 13th and 14th of October. The Chew Valley is this area to the south of Bristol, a delightful area. David lives in the area. I live in the area. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to see artists in their own location. And I think that certainly from a personal point of view, uh, for me to be able to invite people into my home and welcome them there, is a great opportunity to meet people in a relaxed environment and for them to see the whole range of things which I make. I think, too, that I think we should give out the uh, website for it and how people can find it. Um, it's www.chewvalleyartstrail.co.uk. Now, we've got that here, but I'll also put this on the text of the podcast as well, so don't worry in the Great. sense that you have yeah. to grab that and keep repeating this bit of the podcast. <laughs> At the same time, though, Chris, you've got your own website. I do have my own website. Uh, that's up and running. I, I trade under the name of Moda Glass. It's a historic name, but it's very easily remembered. M-O-D-A Glass. Uh, and if you just either Google uh, Moda Glass or go to www.modaglass.co.uk, uh, then you will find a link to me. Okay, now you've been doing it for 20 years. You're yeah. going to see on the websites and see during th this arts trail, but there's plenty of other arts trails and other opportunities coming up in the future because you're also part of the, um, is it the Southwest? You're, you're stumbling here, David. Yeah. It's the Somerset Guild, Somerset of Guild of Craftsmen. Somerset Guild of Craftsmen. And every uh, county in England has its own Guild of Craftsmen, I presume. Ooh, that's, that's stretching it a bit. I mean, there are mm. many guilds throughout the country. Mm. Uh, and something which is quite interesting from that point of view is that they all operate in their own individual manner. There's a Gloucester Guild, there's a Devon Guild, there's a Somerset Guild. The Devon Guild, for example covers a huge area and is a big commercial enterprise. There is actually a Bristol Guild, but I'll just as an aside, the Bristol Guild is not really a guild. It's purely a shop. Uh, the Gloucester <laughs> Guild, it doesn't have any premises, I don't think. But the Somerset Guild, where 
Mm. I actually have some of my work is uh, a proper guild in the sense that we are about 100, 120 makers. And in order to enter the guild, you have to have your work judged by a peer group to be of a high standard. And you then have the opportunity to display and sell your work in the gallery, which Uh, is located at Wells. In Wells in Somerset. Wells being the smallest city in England. Yeah. Um, but and one of the prettiest. One of the prettiest, and yeah. with a, a wonderful kind of um, reputation and a huge volume of tourist traffic. Yeah. Um, now, so we've got the Somerset Guild of Craftsmen. That's another place that people can look out for your work. Um, what does the future hold in terms of your creativity? What what kind of, if you like, um, aspirations have you for the glass work? My aspirations? Well... I think that I want to go on working very much on the commission side because in some respects, if you do a pile of glass and you put it into a shop, into a gallery, you're trying to double think, what would people like? You know, it's, it's, it's more commercial than I truly wish to be. I'm, I'm much keener to actually work on the basis of let's meet minds, let's understand what it is that you're trying to do in your home or as a gift for something special for a special person. Mm. So that's really where I want to go with it. Okay, final question, because, I mean, all of this information will be on the text of the podcast as well to actually look up Chris and you've got, what, a couple of weeks, if that now, until the first one we talked about, the Chew Valley Arts Trail. I'm going to spring a question on you here, Chris. Okay. A final question, because pulling it back to glass and pulling it back to charity. Have you ever considered creating a special bit of glass for the hospice? For the hospice? Not as such. Not as such. I've certainly done pieces of glass which have been specifically sold in aid of the hospice. Uh, One of the things which we have done in the local community where I live, we have got together an evening of entertainment. I can see you're worried already. Uh, an evening of entertainment. <laughs> where, dragged into something. <laughs> where a number of us sung for our supper. Oh, yes, you're a singer too. Aren't yes, you? yes. So we had artwork. We had some talented local artists. We had my glass work. We had members of the Children's Hospice Fundraising uh, Committee. So it was kind of something which was really, really promoting the work of the hospice. And at the same time, we were selling individual items on their behalf. In terms of actually something which the hospice chooses to install of my glasswork, I think you're taking a hell of a leap there, Dave. Just an idea. (laughs) I appreciate the compliments. Well, 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 yeah. I mean, it's just that I just think you've you've raised a lot of money for them. Yeah. You're good at what you do. And it would be, I love, I just think it would be a lovely kind of um, momentum, you know, um, if ever one day you just push the, even if it was a small piece, into the body of the hospice, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, look, I think we're, we're having to come to the end of this now, Chris. Okay, thank you. So everybody have a look out for the Two Valley Arts Trail, which is coming up the 14th and the 15th of October. Chris's house is open on those days, showing all his work. But at the same time, I encourage people to look up the work of the two charities that Chris is so involved with and um, keep looking at his work. Wherever you are in the world, it's a smaller world now and uh, everybody should be involved with everybody else, I feel, in this particular cause. Thank you, Chris, for coming. Thank you, David. 
Well, something else has happened recently that I'm really pleased about, really proud about, and uh, it is that I've been invited to join the International Advisory Board of the Global Institute for Social Work. Now, this is based in Singapore, but obviously it has, has, as the name suggests, a worldwide impact. It's um, a place for sharing knowledge and skills. It's a place for uh, research, and it's a place of like a library for social workers across the world. The best in the world are going to be identified to provide training courses, and those who wish training or wish to research are going to be able to access this virtual classroom anytime, anywhere, because of the power of the internet. Specialists in various subjects can give recorded presentations and they'll be useful for other colleagues and for students. And anybody in our profession can submit material and the associate facilities are available and there's a vision in there to strengthen professional competence. So I just throw this out to anybody who listens to this podcast to look up the Global Institute for Social Work. It's www.thegisw.org. It's on the text of the podcast. But we're also going to be uploading, reviewing packages, uh, training packages for easy access. And it will be looked upon as um, for quality and cultural appropriateness. We will be looking to provide a record of who's using the training for feedback. And we'll have a practitioner network in the form of either Facebook, uh, but there'll also be a blog for practitioners. And there'll be wide networking and wide collaboration with International Federation of Social Work, International Association of Schools of Social Work, uh, and, and, and the United Nations, and, and, and many more. Uh, and I really, I really admire this. I'm privileged to be invited to be on the advisory board, but also at the same time, I think it's a wonderful idea um, to improve the nature of social work and the depth of knowledge within social work across the world. So please have a look at it. Please participate in it if it seems relevant to you. Please contribute to it. So for me, the Global Institute for Social Work is something that I, uh, I'm really looking forward to becoming an ambassador for and to take its message and its possibilities to a much, much wider audience. And I've also um, got uh, a good podcast again coming up with um, the chair of the Global Institute for Social Work and the new chief executive who's also just been appointed soon. So we've got Tan Ngo Jung, who's the chair, and the new chief executive, Dr. Vernon Lok, L-O-K-E. So... Let's look forward to this. It's a great advance. It's been brewing for a while, but suddenly now it's got traction. And I think it's going to be an important advance for research, training and knowledge in our profession. Right. Well, the last thing I wanted to bring to your attention was something that was brought to my attention by a paediatrician who sits on the safeguarding board that I chair in Bradford in West Yorkshire. 
And uh, her particular concern that she said she's had for some considerable time now is the easy availability and access of analgesics in supermarkets and other big stores that sell them, you know, paracetamol, codeine, ibuprofen, etc. And the easy access that they seem to have for children to just grab them or pick them up or effectively buy them if they're teenagers and and take them away. And even though there's a restriction on the amount you can buy, you can just go into about three or four different stores if you wanted to get a lot together. And therefore, if you factor that together with the high instance of suicide amongst teenagers, in fact, I gather that teenagers, um, that suicide is the highest cause of death in teenagers in this country. So it was a particularly worried paediatrician that brought this to my attention, and I said I promised that I would write to the relevant bodies. Now, I wrote in context, if you think about it, that cigarettes have just been put behind shutters, behind the, the actual sort of sales desks now, uh, out of sight, in an effort to try and detract people from buying them. Secondly, high sugary sweets and treats for children have been taken away after a campaign from checkout desks and put elsewhere in the store. So it just seemed pretty logical that dangerous drugs, when ingested in any kind of numbers or accidentally even by children grabbing them, should be so easily available within stores. So I thought, OK, well, who who we start with? And I started by writing to the community pharmacy, um, uh, the community pharmacy kind of um, uh, committee for West Yorkshire, who represents all community pharmacy contractors within that particular geographical area. And I asked to them, you know, look to consider this. Had they thought about this? Are other people um, submitting concerns the same as us? And if not, why not? And they came back to me. And I thought I'd just read you firstly their letter and then we'll go on to where else it had to go from there. She, that is uh, the, the, the person in charge of it, actually says, said to me, this was our, our Ruth Bakken, who's the chief executive of the community pharmacy in West Yorkshire, came back to me saying, I'm unable to make a response for non-pharmacy retailers such as supermarkets and convenience stores. The community pharmacy setting is highly regulated by both the professional regulator, it's the General Pharmaceutical Council, and the commissioner, which is of course NHS England. The only medicines available for self-selection are general sales list medications, and it's been determined by medicine and healthcare products and the regulatory agency, which is the MHRA, that these medicines do not require the presence of a healthcare professional for their sale, and can be made available for self-selection. Okay. The legislation for medicines, medicines classification includes restrictions and rules for general sales list, including limiting the, limited the quantity and the number of doses within each pack, and that the medicine is in a child-resistant packaging. Hmm. Well, medicines classed as pharmacy medicines aren't available for direct public access. Okay and can only be accessed following a conversation with a member of the pharmacy team. However, the decisions to allow medicines to be classified as general sales list medicines, and therefore allowing them to be available on shelves for self-selection, 
lies with the MHRA, and that's the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Agency. So, after this rather, I felt, unhelpful response, I then wrote to the um, Chief Executive Officer of the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, explaining my reasons for it and explaining the context and explaining how cigarettes and sweets and other things deemed dangerous were removed from the shelves, including the rather ironic fact that these actual medicines, easily available for children just to pick up, were actually labelled, please keep out of the reach of children. So, I got a reply back from Dr. Ian Hudson, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, saying, thanks very much about, the about your letter about the accessibility of non-prescription medicines in supermarkets and other retail outlets by children and young people. Medicinal products available in retail outlets are classed as general sales list medicines. Medicines legislation does not address where they should be displayed. As a matter of good practice and bearing in mind that medicinal products are labelled to the effect that they should be kept out of reach of children, we take the view that retailers should position them accordingly. But this is not a legal requirement. However, we understand the concerns... And should there be evidence of a significant risk to public health arising from the current legal position, we would, of course, consider whether regulation was necessary. Well, we are raising a concern. We do feel that there is evidence of a significant risk to public health. As I said, the paradox is actually being that it's labelled keep out of the reach of children, yet it's right there within the reach of any toddler pushing past or any teenager just happens to stroll up and down the aisles in a supermarket, or any of these small convenience stores as well, where it's right out there, along with anything else that they could just pick up, grab, or walk around three, four, five stores and get enough to kill themselves. So, I'm asking you, our listeners, to keep in touch about this, get in touch if you support this, I've talked to MPs now, and we're going to begin a kind of, if you like, to wind this up, because I'm really committed to the idea that I think that this needs to be addressed. And I really value your feedback. Do it on that uh, speak pipe on the podcast. Just that, that can just one click, and you can give me a message. Or email me at media at socialworldpodcast.com. And let's collect a few other views and get ahead of steam going on this if you support it. So thanks very much. That's my rant for the day, if you like. I'll be back soon with another podcast. And in the meantime, thanks ever so much for listening. And see you soon.